on this edition of the Journalism Salute. In terms of my technique as a writer, I mean, yes, I read other journalists. I mean, as a journalist, you have to read other journalists. But when it comes to technique, I'm reading a lot of fiction and poetry writers. I'm looking at how they set up stories. Because what I've learned is that if you give somebody a compelling image and you carry or a metaphor and you carry that through, people will stay with you. We talk with arts and culture journalist Calundra Smith about what she writes, how she writes, her career aspirations, and how she's tried to make her field more diverse. Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Calundra Smith. Calundra is the senior publications writer at Emory University, but is also a journalist covering theater, art, and culture for a wide range of outlets, including the New York Times, Food and Wine, The Undefeated, and The Bitter Southerner. We'll focus on the latter, the the writing aspect, and ask you to share the story, first of all, of your path to uh, your current journalism career. Hi, yes, I'm happy to be here. The path to journalism for me was both, has been both winding and straightforward at the same time. I always loved to write. I realized I had a, a talent for writing when I was in second grade. And uh, my teacher would do these little, what she called story starters, where she would, you know, start a sentence or put a scenario up on the dry erase board. And then we would have to fill a page or two pages with a story that kind of completed the idea. And for me, I would write, you know, 10, 15 pages and didn't want to do my uh, work in other subjects. So writing for me is something that I had an affinity for very early on. And so when I was in high school, I initially thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then I did mock trial and quickly discovered that maybe that wasn't the answer. And so then I was like, oh, I'll just be a journalist because I always like to write, not knowing really what it was, didn't know any journalists or anything like that, not personally anyway. And so I went to college at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, and went there and thought, okay, yeah, I'll major in journalism. And then my freshman year, I ended up auditioning for a play and the theater bug got me again. And so I ended up with a theater and journalism double major. And I got to around the end of my four years in college and didn't really know what to do with those two degrees. I just knew that I liked both things a lot and didn't want to have to choose one over the other. And so I studied abroad the summer before my senior year in London. And we had to take a performance critique class and it was like a light bulb went off. And I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna go either be like a a press agent on Broadway or I'm gonna go work for Playbill. (laughs) This is what I thought. (laughs) And so (laughs) I got back to the US and started Googling arts journalism programs and applied for all the ones I could and wound up going to Syracuse University to get my master's degree in arts journalism and started freelancing there and have been going ever since. 
Was there anything in your family history that would have lent itself uh, to, in terms of your upbringing being influenced, that would have led you in this direction? I mean, not really. I mean, my parents are not, you know, journalists or anything like that. They, but they always encouraged my brother and me in our talents, like whatever we were good at, they, you know, doubled down on. So, you know, my mother to this day still buys me notebooks, you know, she'll come to my house and she'll just be like, I saw this notebook or aren't these pens really cute? And I was always a very imaginative kid, you know, and I think that being a writer is imagination as much as it is in putting pen to paper, so to speak. And they definitely encouraged my imagination, which I'm very grateful for um, today because I was the kid who I would do, set up my Barbies to do photo shoots like with the disposable cameras. And I would like create backdrops like at, you would see it like Olin Mills, those kind of cheesy backdrops. I would create those for my Barbies out of like gift wrap and tissue paper. And I would do these like photo shoots with these Kodak disposable cameras. So um, <laughs> I was just a very imaginative kid and writing provided a space for that to flourish. In another interview you did, you said, simply put, I love to tell stories about people with lofty ambitions. I'm drawn to artists and entrepreneurs who no one else is paying attention to. I have a knack for uncovering the person behind the art, and it brings me great joy to do so. So with that, I guess I would ask, what is the goal of, of your writing in the different areas in which you write? I think, too, my goal is always to get people curious. I figured out pretty early on, and I think this is because I also worked in marketing and PR early in my career, is that people don't really care about what you do until they care about who you are. And so the way that I figured to make people care about the art is to make them fall in love with the artist. So I want people, when they read something I write, to get curious. That's my goal. So let's, let's cite a couple of examples of that. And I wanna give people a concrete sense of, of the kinds of stories that you do. I wanna start with one that you said at year's end is the best feature you've ever done. You did a profile last July of artist Michi Mecco for The Undefeated. The Undefeated is an ESPN site covering blacks in sports, but also all things connected to the black experience. They wanted to do a series on artists emerging from the pandemic. Tell us about him and tell us about the process of writing the piece that you uh, put together. Sure. So Michi Miko is an artist uh, based in Atlanta, where I live. And he, I always have my eye on, you know, I feel like a million things at a time. You know, one of the things that anybody who knows me says is, girl, you've got a lot going on. And it's true. So I always am watching a lot of different people at once. And so Morgan Jerkins, who's now at Zora Magazine, she was the editor of The Undefeated at the time. And she reached out to me and invited me to pitch them some artists for the series because she was familiar with my work. And so when I heard the angle they were taking, I really wanted to think about artists who I knew in Atlanta and across the country who were really on the verge 
at the time the pandemic hit, like they were really hitting their stride and then it was disrupted. And so I pitched her, I think maybe four or five different artists and they were most found Michi most compelling because they hadn't had a visual artist in the lineup yet. And he was, he, he kind of disappeared from society for a year. I mean, he wasn't posting on social media. He was doing a lot of fishing and camping in the woods as folks can read in the uh, piece. And I, I identified with that to a certain extent. I wasn't absent from social media or anything like that, but I did find myself spending a lot more time in nature and kind of wanting to run to nature in the midst of turmoil. So I thought that was very interesting and that's what drew me um, to him. And so for that piece, usually when I do artist profiles, cause I do quite a few artists, studio visits and profiles, I do the initial interview on the phone. I'll talk to them for about 30 to 45 minutes. And then I go do a studio visit. And then if they'll let me after the studio, I'll go to their house. So with Michi, I went to his studio and I spent probably an hour and a half, two hours in his studio. And then we communicated some more via email. And that was that. There was a line in the piece that I know that if I had written it, I would have jumped up and done a little dance in celebration of it because I was like, when I read it, I was like, oh, that's perfect. He was the wilderness he needed to explore. I don't mm-hmm. typically ask uh, writers this, but I will ask you this because I, I, I really like that. And I, as I said, I know how I would have reacted if I wrote that. How do you come up with something like that? He said that. And that was the that was the kind of through line that seemed to be emerging in the story. As I'm listening to the person being interviewed, as I'm listening to the person, as I'm interviewing them, I'm the type of writer who I start configuring the story in my mind. It's almost like architecture. Like uh, it's, I start building it and being like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of structure, like, do I have my opening scene yet? Do I have an image? Do I have a central metaphor? And I think that also comes from the fact that like creative writing is where I first came to writing in terms of poetry, short stories, theater. So I'm thinking about things in a non-journalistic way in terms of story structure so that I can give you visuals and strong figurative language and so I'm, I'm I don't stop until I know I have that image in terms of my technique as a writer I mean yes I read other journalists I mean as a journalist you have to read other journalists but when it comes to technique I'm reading a lot of fiction and poetry writers I'm looking at how they set up stories because what I've learned is that if you give somebody a compelling image and you carry or a metaphor and you carry that through people will stay with you you know the kind of conventional rules about the nut graph and the you know one sentence lead or you gotta you know give people everything they need in the first paragraph that's kind of uh, old school newspaper journalism approach but what I do is a lot of magazines and features and so I'm like well let me give you an image and a and an idea that piques your interest and again, makes you curious. And then you'll stay with me through the next one or 2000 words because I've got you wondering where this ends up. Yeah, there's definitely an aspect of, of the, I want to keep going 
as you read, or you, you mentioned a thousand to 2000 words. You, that piece was only 1300 and it felt like extremely thorough for a 1300 word piece. The description was highly specific. Every quote moved the story along. Or is there another reason why you felt that that was one of the best features? That people, when people are open and honest, it's easy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny, you know, as a journalist, when you sit down with people and they're always like, I hope I didn't talk too much. And it's like, no, like people who talk are the easiest. People who are tight-lipped are the hardest. (laughs) (laughs) That I I know exactly what you mean by that. So let's transition an example of something that you did theater-wise. These pieces, part column, part review, two stories where you linked a bunch of different thoughts together that touched on a theme. Can you explain what went into a two, art- uh, two different articles that you wrote based on seven plays that you saw in two trips to New York City, plays that were either by Black writers or had Black actors and actresses in the lead? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, it was a you know, a business decision in a lot of ways. I mean, as a theater critic, and and I'm always paying attention to what's happening in the regions, what's happening to Broadway. And by paying attention to those trends, what we know is that for many, many years, Broadway has influenced what has been produced in the regions. Artistic directors at major theaters across the country will travel to New York City on trips to see what's on stage to decide, you know, do they want to fight it out for the rights to it to produce it at their theaters. But what I, for the first piece for American theater, which is called Broadway's Back, but who is it for? I was questioning, like, does that model even have any application anymore? Because Broadway effectively shut down for a year and a half and regional theaters, which are nonprofit and have a mission driven imperative to the communities that they're in, did not. And so if I have programmed and sustained for a year without the influence of this external commercial theater thing, do I even need it anymore? Is what's happening on those stages even speaking to my audience, especially when Broadway kind of had a crisis of conscience and, and has been in this weird space programmatically in terms of trying to diversify, but also not alienate um, its core audience. So that was just, you know, that conflict and that push and pull and just pondering that is what inspired the first piece. Um, And I went over the course of two different, I did a weekend trip in September and a weekend trip in October and saw all those shows. And it was interesting because even between September 2021 and October 2021, those two different trips, New York, when I went in September was still largely very empty. You could move through the streets pretty freely. And then when I went in October, it was feeling a little more like New York City again. And then on the second piece for The Undefeated, which was about what Broadway was teaching us about grief, is I was thinking about how there were a, kind of a continuation of the first one of like, are these plays the types of plays and musicals that people want to see as we're emerging from quarantine and lockdown and racial reckoning and loss? And what's a common thread that's tying these plays together? And, and the thing was grief which the nation is doing, grieving. And we don't know how long this grieving period will last because the pandemic is still 
with us and people are still dying, but art often is how people process or at least opens up the part of them that allows them to process. So that's the inspiration behind those two pieces. There was another piece that you did, this one published on TDF, where you said, I want to see a Broadway show where the strong, independent Black woman isn't punished, where the Black teenager gets to live and go to the prom, where the Black lady isn't the lead, not the sidekick. I want to see her dance and sing without permission, simply because it's Tuesday. This is how we live our lives. It's time that we see that on stage. When I read your writing, I would describe it as very much, regardless of whether it's the feature on the painter or a piece of this nature, essentially a column, you write from the heart very much. And I'm curious what the key, what you view the key to writing from the heart is. That's a good question. It took a while because, you know, J school training does not necessarily teach you to write from the heart. It's very much facts and objectives and leave yourself out of it. And I remember <laughs> when I was uh, first, first starting out, I would do interviews and I would try to have like no reaction to what people were telling me because I was like, I don't want them to think I'm thinking one way or another about something. But I think time and the more I learn about myself and what I care about, it is harder to deny what's inside of me and therefore it has to come out in the writing. I also think that people are looking for someone to say the thing that they're thinking that no one else will say. It's, you know, you know, because you started this podcast that the public trust in journalism is abysmal. And part of the reason why is because people stopped trusting that journalism was speaking up and speaking out for the communities that they were reporting on. And so for me, I can't interview all of these talented Black women artists. I can't be a Black woman. I can't live in a city that's more than 50% Black and know that Black women make up the majority of Black theater goers and not say that because they say it to me. So then I, with the, on the, who has, I, with the platform, have to say it out loud. And yet, even with that, the, the other thing that I would say about your writing is that it, it seems to always go back to a place of hope and hopefulness. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm, curious, I'm curious about that as that goes with your approach. I'm an eternal optimist. I always have been. Um, I think, you know, to present people with a problem and leave them, you know, kind of dump it in their lap (laughs) (laughs) is unfair. (laughs) So I try to, when I point out issues, social issues, I do tend to try to leave it on a note on hope. And if I can you know, get people thinking, not offer solutions, because, you know, that's not my job as a journalist, but get people thinking about how they can be the solution. Because there's no social ill or issue in this world that man created that man can't correct. 
pausing for a quick second on that optimistic note to let you know that if you like this episode, you can check out others we've done. We just talked to Vince Dixon of the Boston Globe about data-driven visual journalism. We had Carrington Tatum discussing covering environmental racism in Memphis. And we talked to Ashley Fields, a great beacon for the future of journalism, Ashley at Howard University. And if you like the show, hit us up on Twitter, JournalismPod, or JournalismSalute at gmail.com. Now back to Calundra Smith. Transitioning to something that is actually, for me, a little bit more educational. In my real job, I work in sports, and I like to ask people that I talk to, how do you watch baseball? Some people watch it for one thing, some people watch it for another. When you, someone who's a theater critic, watch a play with a critical eye, you're taking in a lot of things. You talked before about creative writing and all the different things that you were looking for when, you, when you're writing a feature type pieces. But what about when you're reviewing a play? What are you watching? Everything. I'm watching how I'm, I'm watching from the parking lot. Who's going into the theater? How are they dressed? What's the experience when they walk in? You know, I, my, my, my process starts before I even get inside. And then if the set is not behind a curtain when we enter the house, I'm looking at setting, I'm listening to house music, I'm listening to whatever sounds or whatever maybe you know, on stage before the show even starts. And then when it starts, I am, I know I'm really loving a show when in my mind I stop reviewing it and I'm just enjoying it. And that is rare because most things are just okay. And that's fine, but it's treat when I really love something to the point where I can like kind of turn the critic off. And then again, as I'm watching it, I am writing in my head, I'm building it. Like, okay, what's the central metaphor? What's the central theme? Or what's the thing that's the underlying thing that is not you know, necessarily brought to the surface, but is interesting to me how is the audience responding to certain material? You know, did the actors read truthful? Are they making clear choices? You know, all of those kind of Aristotelian, I guess you would say, values, but then also expanding that to include more. So it's it's constant for me. And the, the real challenge is when I'm not reviewing a show to not be reviewing it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way about sports. What makes a, what makes a good review? Do you like what makes a well-written review well, or what, yeah, what makes a well-written review? I would say a well-written review gives the reader an idea what the show is about, what the artist's intentions were in writing it, staging it, what the producing company was trying to aim in produce, trying to achieve and producing it, as well as, for me, it's always about context. I think that, again, people don't care about what you do until they care about who you are. So when it comes to the arts, especially in a society that devalues the arts so much, you have to tie art into what's happening in society. And so for me, I'm always looking at a social context. How is what's happening on stage speak to the now? And I think it also most importantly has to build a bridge between the art and the audience. 
a review is a conversation starter for me. It's not a conversation closer. How careful are you to not give away too much? You, you no spoilers. You can't give away too much. That's rude. <laughs> <laughs> and now this is, I'm curious about the mechanics of this too. Are you in the, in the theater? Are you taking comprehensive notes in the dark? Sometimes. With straight plays, I usually will listen for like a line or two or if something kind of weird or out of the ordinary happens, I might jot a note down. But I most of the time can watch without having to do a whole lot of writing. When I was first starting out, I would have notebooks and notebooks full of just everything. Musicals, I still have to take notes on a bit more. And then usually I have to listen to the cast recording if there is one, even after the musical. So it's a little bit more involved. I'd like to try that for myself just to see what the process of doing it, particularly in Total Darkness, was like. I want to just segue back to other types of writing that you do. The number of stories that I saw you did some pieces for The Bitter Southerner, one with an artist who does paintings of Michelle Obama, a profile of uh, a piece on the actress Ingenue Ellis on the women who influenced her, a photographer from Mississippi, the author of a young adult book with a Black female protagonist, and the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. How do you come up with ideas for your pieces? So with Bitter Southerner, I want to say all except Amy Sherald, who painted Michelle Obama, they approached me. So yeah, yeah, Amy, Amy Sherrill was the only one where I approached them. And she was at uh, Spelman College, which she graduated from Clark Atlanta, but she took art classes at Spelman and they had had an exhibition of her work. And, you know, figurative painting is her, people didn't know her necessarily outside of the art world before she painted Michelle Obama's portrait. But Amy Sherald has been doing figurative painting for a long time. And so I had become familiar with her work years before she painted Michelle Obama. And so because she's from Columbus, Georgia, I was like, we have to do something on her because Bitter Southerner, which is a, I guess you would say Bitter Southerner is like an online magazine about Southern culture, specifically focusing on kind of the new South. And uh, they had never done anything on her before. And so I, you know, convinced them that, you know, we should. The other pieces I've written for them were all things they approached me about based on kind of what they know I'm interested in. And it was a lot of fun. The Ingenue Ellis piece was really fun to do. We, you know, talked and emailed over the course of a few weeks. We did maybe two, two hours sit down on Zoom sessions, but then we also were communicating in the meantime and in between time. And that was during the quarantine period. And she was, she lives in Mississippi, but was stuck out in Los Angeles filming King Richard, which is, you know, the, the movie about Venus and Serena Williams' dad. She plays the mom in that. And so that was just an interesting time. And then they matched this very talented photographer named Imani Kam who's based in Jackson, Mississippi, with me and her on that piece. And they went out to like her pastor's farm and shot the photography for that. It turned out just fantastic. So yeah, I, they, they approached me, which is beautiful to be in a place where people say Calundra would be good for this because I have to be honest and say I was, I've been cleaning out my inbox 
for a long time. It's like this ongoing project. And I swear half of it is just rejection emails. (laughs) (laughs) But you got to keep pitching. Yeah, keep pitching um, and know that the the right the right places will find you when it's time (laughs) (laughs) so i want to talk about some things that you do that aren't necessarily actual pen to paper writing but are are involved uh, journalistically you okay so you were the founding co-chair of the american theater critics association equity diversity inclusion committee what does that uh, committee do there are less than two dozen Black theater critics in this country. And when we talk about Latinx, Asian American Pacific Islander, transgender, I mean, name all the otherisms people could be. When we get granular like that, there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens in journalism. And when we start talking about arts criticism, whether we're talking theater, dance, opera, you name it, These are art forms that people largely consider to have European origins, which is not necessarily true in the case of theater especially. And so for people who are not white to get into positions where they can speak as cultural authorities is very difficult, especially when those positions are usually the first on the chopping block when media companies have to do layoffs anyway. So what the now called the belonging equity, inclusion and diversity is we try to move barriers out of the way for young people, you know, LGBTQ plus people, people of color and women, all populations that are underrepresented in theater criticism to be able to get into the field. So sometimes that looks like providing workshops and trainings, which we did a series during quarantine where we had these sessions on Facebook Live that were very well attended on various topics on diverse issues in theater. Sometimes that looks like mentorship, just launched a mentorship program at Kadid, specifically focused on LGBTQ plus critics. Also, Sometimes that looks like connecting people with editors because they may not have their email addresses and phone numbers. And that's very simple. Or with peers, we have the diverse critics list where people can find each other in a database. Sometimes it looks like calling publicists on a Broadway show and saying, this person is a member of ATCO, give them press tickets, stop being an ass. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I can say ass. (laughs) Ass works, it's fine. So it looks like advocacy, you know, that's essentially what the job is. And uh, right now we're working on a prize to be able to do a cash prize, like a lot of other journalism organizations have, rewarding excellence in the field. You mentioned mentioned advocacy. I've asked this before of a couple of of my guests that that come from uh, different backgrounds. What can someone like me do to help? I would say the first thing is that particularly for people from marginalized communities, 
they may not know that arts journalism and arts criticism, particularly when we're talking about, is even an option as a pathway in journalism. So I think just telling people that it's an option is a huge form of advocacy because we cannot assume that everybody knows or has access to all the same information. I would say the other thing is to share. When you read good art stories, share them on social media, share them with friends and family to, to engage with, whether they're on you know, public radio or whether they're podcasts or uh, online or what have you, because we all know that when you write for these media companies or you're contributing content for these media companies, they're looking at metrics and the highest metrics get the most attention from and the most funding and the most resources. And so if we can get the metrics up on arts, writing and arts content, then we can restore the idea that being an, a, an arts critic in general is a viable career. Because right now it's a great passion project. It's a great side hustle. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a hobby, but it's not a career anymore because the jobs have been stripped away. And so we have to get the jobs back because the artists have continued to create. Advocacy, amplifying, uh, and mentoring certainly take on many different forms. And among the long-term goals listed on your LinkedIn page is that you wanna design an arts journalism curriculum to pay it forward, pass it down for colleges or high school students. What would that curriculum look like? Oh, you know, Mark, if I had that, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> I think the first thing is to, again, exposure. So the curriculum would have to involve getting students out of the classroom and allowing them to see the art. The National Endowment for the Arts does a, a study on arts participation. And every year that they've done it for the last, like, almost 40 years, there's one metric that has remained the same, which is that if a child is exposed to the arts before they graduate from high school, they are two times more likely to be an arts patron or work in the arts or engage with the arts as an adult. And because again, the arts are often on the chopping block in our education systems when funding decisions have to be made. We have schools all across the country, even now losing band, orchestra, chorus, theater, dance programs. And so if we can get every child exposed, that's the first step in the curriculum is that this is a job you do, you have to do it on your feet. So you've got to get to the theater. You've got to get to the dance hall. You've got to get to the gallery. And so it would definitely have to be hands-on of taking them and then encouraging students to think critically about what it is they're seeing and experiencing. Because what I've found, because I teach workshops on occasion to college students, is that they don't necessarily go deep enough with what they're seeing. It's very surface level analysis. And we've got to get them thinking critically enough to pull 
something out of themselves that they don't even know is there. I know that, well, two things that we're not necessarily going to be able to discuss in depth, but I did want to bring them up. One is that I know that you're writing a play. How's that going? I'm writing a few plays and (laughs) that has, that has been a fun adventure, something that has been surprising in my life. I, I was not one of those people who was like a playwright, aspiring playwright who like fell into journalism by any means. I was surprised the day that I started hearing characters' voices in my head and went and wrote it. (laughs) It shocked me as much as anybody else. And so I feel very fortunate that right now I actually have one of my plays heading into a lab for a developmental workshop next week. So that'll be the next couple of weeks for me. I don't know when this comes out. So let me, then my stuff will be on stage. My play Younger will have a developmental workshop at True Colors Theater in Atlanta, February 18th through 20th. It'll be in person and then it'll be online available for streaming as well. So people can go to True Colors Theater Um, and check that out either online or if they're in Atlanta, they can check it out in person, socially distant seating with mask on and negative COVID tests. And then I'm also a part of a program called through the National New Play Network and Horizon Theater in Atlanta called Black Women Speak. So I'll get to writing a contemporary play I'm going to write for that project. And then I also have a trilogy that I'm working on. And that is still in its infant stages, but one of the plays will have a a workshop later this year. So I'm excited about where that's going because it's not necessarily something I ever dreamed up or imagined for myself, but it feels so right when I'm doing it. And I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to mention what your day job is. So I am the senior writer in the Department of Communications and Marketing at Emory University in Atlanta. And um, I've done higher ed communications for the past, gosh, a long time. And I enjoy it. I really do. I love Emory as an institution because there's always something interesting going on. And uh, it's just really the brightest, most ambitious people. It's It's a treasure to be able to write articles for Emory Magazine and for our online news center and and be able to give back in in a way, in that way, but also learn from really bright people because a lot of folks don't know, but like a lot of really talented journalists end up landing in higher ed. So, you know, I'm working alongside people who were beat reporters at the Times, at the Wall Street Journal, (laughs) at, at places that I've never you know, worked. And so it's great to learn from them as well. Going back to what you were talking about with plays, uh, you wrote something on your blog and Facebook page a couple of years ago, 28 Days of Black Plays during Black History Month, this being Black History Month. In our last episode, we talked to Vince Dixon. He did a project on 28 Days of Black Pioneers in Journalism, Technology, and Design. Uh, just going mm-hmm. back to, to, to plays, are there any plays that you would particularly recommend in this current moment as we stand in 2022? Well, first, I would encourage people to look through the whole list on 28 Days of Black Plays. But I think depending on, you know, your familiarity with theater, if people are complete novices, I would say you've got to, you know, 
for African-American theater, you've got to get familiar with the work of Lorraine Hansberry and of August Wilson and of Amiri Baraka and of Alice Childress. So there are playwrights that come to mind more so than, than specific plays. And then if we're talking in a, you know, contemporary context, folks who are living and writing and working now, you know, we've got people like Susan Laurie Parks, Lynn Nottage, Terrell Avin McCraney, who, uh, Dominique Morisseau, who are some of the most accomplished Black playwrights working today, whose work is just really compelling and interesting. So yeah, I would say, and uh, the thing I love about plays is that they're shorter than like novels and nonfiction books. So you can read a play on your lunch break because it's usually like a minute a page is kind of how the, the onstage and reading time is calculated. So if the page is, if the script is only like, you know, 60 pages, you can do that in an hour. <laughs> sure. Certainly uh, something like mentioning the one, one of the things that you mentioned that I've seen, something like Fences, August, is, is certainly uh, worth everyone's time. The link to the 28 Days of Black Plays, I will put that in the show notes. We close with the same question that I ask everyone to close. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work? A journalist or a journalism association? Yep. Yes. I would say the Native American Journalism Association. They are doing, Native American journalists in general have done an incredible job of covering what is happening to our indigenous communities, particularly during this pandemic, because so often people live in isolation and it's easy to forget about, you know, these people on whose land we live and breathe. And so, I would say that organization is a, a great resource for folks who are interested in covering the Native American community. They have a glossary of how to appropriately describe, you know, various aspects of the culture and tribes and things like that. And they have really just done a marvelous job. So yeah, I would say the Native American Journalism Association. For those interested, episode 36, we talked to uh, Graham Lee Brewer of NBC News and NAJA, if you would like to learn further about that. Kalundra, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. This was fascinating, it's a subject that I'm particularly interested in. Thank you for joining us. Best of luck, and we'll be sure, I'll be sure to uh, check out your play. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.